Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Academy Head of Sports Science at Fulham Football Club, John Goodwin. Thanks for tuning in to episode 230 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I am absolutely delighted to bring John on to the, this episode today. So John was a program leader when I was at St. Mary's University on their distance learning uh, Masters in Strength and Conditioning. And he was absolutely superb, unbelievable communicator, educator and coach. And obviously since then he's been to Saudi Arabia, which we chat about a lot in the podcast and has more recently come back to Fulham Football Club. So in this podcast, we chat a lot about his experience in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, what his role was, how that developed, and in the end, why he ended up coming back. And obviously, given John's expertise in uh, sprint and change direction, we discuss a lot around both of them topics and John's uh, tapping into John's experience of looking at an athlete and actually putting a session on based on what is seen in that training session um, with the athlete. So really interesting chat and I suppose the first half of the episode is looking at John's uh, background, looking at his time in Saudi Arabia and then in the second half looking very practically at speed and change direction specifically in football which is obviously what he's got in, gone back into with Fulham Football Club. So unbelievable episode which I'm sure you'll absolutely love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, and you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimize return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. So iMeasureU was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazir and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So iMeasureU works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and 
counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about I Measure You, head over to the website, which is imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with John Goodwin. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So today I am delighted to welcome John Goodwin, who is the newly appointed Academy Head of Sports Science. So welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a bit of a, an overview on your education and then a bit about your background, and then we'll get on to more up-to-date stuff yeah. with Saudi and obviously Fulham. Yeah. Um, frustrated track athlete is how I would characterize myself. So uh, an injured athlete, which drove me to be a coach. Um, so then st- started coaching very late 90s into early 2000s, um, but naturally trickled into an academic route. So I ended up staying after an undergrad degree in uh, sports rehab, ended up staying on as a teaching assistant at St. Mary's where I studied. Um, picked up a master's from Surrey University in biomedical engineering while I was there and basically ended up staying down an academic route and then gradually just became, rather than a frustrated injured athlete, I became a frustrated coach because my coaching was all piecemeal, if you like, around around being an academic. Um, so part of solving some of that frustration was driven by setting up an undergrad degree and then a master's degree in strength conditioning. So I got to work with developing coaches day to day, which was much closer to the environment rather than teaching straight up biomechanics to sports science students, which is where I'd started. Um, but still endlessly, endlessly frustrated. Um, and that was then for a quiet period trying to get out of academia into coaching but the problem was once you're down that track to the extent that I was um, people don't see you as a coach Um, so really working in academy football was where I was trying to get for about five years before I left St Perry's I was trying to get into academy football um, but a little bit stuck in as much as for financial reasons to be able to exit academia into coaching, the level of coaching I was trying to get into, people weren't really able to take me seriously at. Um, so I, a few times I got down to a similar position to the role I'm in now, Academy Head of Sports Science, with a couple of clubs, I got sat down to the last two or three candidates in interviews um, for those positions at other clubs. But then in the end, it was like, well, we've got this other guy who's run an academy before. Or we've got this other guy who's from football. And that was always the trump card that stopped me moving that way. So what enabled me to take the leap um, was getting a call in 2015 from a guy called Roy Heddy, who used to be head of physiology at the RFU. So he had taken a role as head of performance in Saudi Arabia at their Olympic committee. And uh, he just called me up and said, we're trying to set up a sports system and a sports institute here. Are you interested in leading the SNC stuff? And I was just so, so eager to get into a sport coaching setting that uh, 
I, I jumped at saying yes to that without even thinking. My wife, who had always been reluctant to leave the country, for some reason chose to say yes to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> of, all the, of all the places, we, I'd look, we'd looked at jobs in Australia, we'd looked at jobs in America, we'd looked at jobs in Canada, and of all the places she said yes to, she said yes to Saudi Arabia. Um, I think because she, she was at a similar point to me career-wise in that she was not working in an environment she wanted to be working in. So she was a secondary school teacher who wasn't very happy. So, uh, yeah, that led us to a scary adventure to Saudi Arabia. Um, and three years at their Olympic Committee, which was a fantastically interesting and at the same time incredibly frustrating experience. And in the end, I guess after three years there, the reason I left is that the frustrating outweighed the exciting and engaging challenge that was there. Um, and I really felt the need to be doing something more productive with my time. It felt like things were just going around in circles a little bit too much in Saudi that I, I really wanted to help them have impact there, but it didn't feel like the project was ever going to be able to move in the way it needed to, to have that impact. Um, so that started me looking around as I got towards the end of my contract in Saudi. That started me looking around and led me back to virtually back home. So back to Fulham, whose training ground is only sort of 10 miles from St. Mary's, where I'd spent the previous 20 years. I'm now back in the same area at, at Fulham. Um, in the job I was really trying to get to before I left for Saudi in the first place. So if nothing else, from my perspective, it enabled me to get into the coaching environment I wanted to be in, which is working with uh, working with kids and young athletes in trying to have some real developmental impact on people. So that's, so, that's me. Yeah, so what, you mentioned the project in Saudi. I mean, we've spoken a little bit offline, but what was the project? So essentially what it was and how it was sold to me, which made it so exciting, was that there's essentially close to close to no sports system that existed in Saudi. So they've got Olympic Committee, they've got federations, they've got clubs, but there's a, a, a real level of dysfunction in all of those structures that really stops them producing anything, stops them from being able to support athletes effectively. Um, so you've got lots and lots of very capable kids trying to develop and represent their country, but the system just isn't able to support them. So the opportunity to develop and build that system was an incredibly exciting, exciting prospect to go out there for. Um, and when I was first there, we were geared towards finalizing the money to fund the project. So we we're in essentially government funding meetings relating to their national national transformation project uh, vision 2030 so developing projects around all sectors of society sport being one that would help the country move move forward so sort of that that government funding process kind of got us to a point of having provisional approval for a very large pot of money to be able to be able to develop over a number of years a multi-sport institute site to have a succession plan of training Saudis to, 
to come in and deliver that system and gradually take over from expats who would initially need to lead that system um, to set up sport programs for females, which was a really, really exciting one for me to try and to try and get forward in that environment. Um, but the problems came when what what really wasn't able to happen was they weren't, weren't able to pull the trigger. So we weren't able to progress things forward because of the, the level of disruption in the systems. They have quite frequent changes of leadership and that causes changes of direction. And that stalls money ever coming, that stops things happening the way they need to, stops things progressing. Um, because they have a heavy reliance on consultants and it's in the interests of consultants to keep going through more iterations of planning and reports and recommendations. Um, but what they weren't able to do is get from that stage of, of analysis and reporting and recommendations to actually pulling the trigger and, and, and delivering a plan. Um, yeah, I've gone wandered around there. I'm not sure where I got no, to. <laughs> no, 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 that's absolutely fine. So just one thing, and not to get too political, what was it like for your wife living in Saudi? Uh, she had a great time. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it, it was a life-transforming experience for both of us because actually, like as I said, she was unhappy in her job and I was actually... I was actually suffering with mental health issues working in the university sector. So I was, um, so I was suffering from, for dep on, from depression for quite a while before I left Saudi. I was medicated at the point I left the country, and within months of being in Saudi, I was off medication and much much happier. Um, so, like, it was a real life changing experience for me, and the same for my wife. She was able to go from an environment where she was really unhappy in work. She was able to retrain online because there weren't really courses available for her because it's not, the environment doesn't really allow for that for expats um, in Saudi, but she was able to study online, retrain for a new career and, and, and had a great experience. Um, you hear lots of stories about um, challenges for women out there. But apart from a few sort of day to sort of shifts in your day to day life behaviours, like for example, she sticks in a buyer on every day when she goes out. Um, like when you go into a mall, they have sort of security and metal detectors when you go into a mall, and the women go through one side and the men go through the other. Um, if you go to a restaurant, there's one door with an entrance for families, so mixed groups, and there's one door with an entrance for male-only groups. Um, like Apart from those things, if, you, if you're able to let those things wash over you if you, don't, if you don't find those things frustrating, then it feels like a really normal environment to be in. And the times that my wife had interactions with Saudi women, like she, she had experiences with Saudi women being incredibly friendly and helpful and warm towards her. Um, the time we were out there, the, the uh, religious police in the tower basically had a lot of their powers reduced. So they became a lot less visible and active on the streets. So I think 
before we arrived and in the early stages of us arriving, sort of the religious police might 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 stop you and say you're not wearing your headscarf and tell you to put your headscarf on. Um, but even those sorts of things stopped while while she was there. So my wife didn't cover her head. She just wore a buyer um, and, and had a fairly, fairly n- normal by our standards. I'm, put, I'm doing inverted commas in the air here. <laughs> yeah, normal, so, yeah. normal lifestyle. Um, yeah, so, so, so over, overall it was a really rewarding and happy family experience. And our kids were super happy out there because you have – like the sunshine's out, you have an outdoor lifestyle. The kids are out on their bikes or in the swimming pool. Um, they're having a great time every day. So, in a sense, it was a really nice place to live. And for and for all the social challenges we would perceive that that country to have compared to what's normal for us, um, actually, what I saw was a country that was trying to progress again I'm, I'm doing air inverted commas here progress at a really high rate like they're trying to move from an, a culture which n- not very long ago was a real tribal culture intense um they're trying to move to something that's you know more like an american they're quite heavily influenced by american culture moved towards an American cultural direction really, really fast. So you've got lots of social norms that feel like the UK in, say, like the 18th or 19th century, but you're combining those cultural norms with iPhones and McDonald's, which <laughs> which is a really weird mixture to try and see because for us – iPhones and McDonald's came with a different set of cultural norms. They've got they've got these really really things that feel really or relatively recent and new to us, alongside cultural norms that feel like two hundred years ago to us. Um, and they're trying to ch- and those cultural norms are changing really fast. So there's also this tension in the society that you've got that they're trying to manage, which is Lots of the society are fairly open and liberal, um, but you can only move a society so fast because conservative groups within society are unwilling to be dragged at a super high rate and are very scared of what it will do to their culture and their society if you jump towards the way the US live or the way the UK live as a as a a lifestyle and a set of cultural norms. There's a lot of people would be very, very scared by that. And there are things that are worse. Like, you know, that there will be things that making that leap to an American style culture is much worse than what they have now. Like they have or or a UK style culture. So for example, all the expats working Olympic committee got really frustrated that lots of the Saudis didn't have the same work ethic they had. But at the same time, Saudis have a fantastically family-oriented culture. Like, like their, their family networks are large. Their family networks are always on call for each other. They're always there to help each other. They're incredibly broad and supportive. 
And I think in our culture, we lose a lot of that because we're too concerned with being the first into work, being the last one home, getting more done than everybody else. Um, and, and, from a, and from a mental health perspective, which actually going out to Saudi was really high in my mind at the time, from a mental health perspective, there's lots of things that are quite positive about Saudi culture compared to what we have. So, yeah, there's lots of things I guess, I guess I learned and took away from that environment that were really valuable, and our experience was fantastic. If you're, I and mean, I wasn't expecting you to say that, so that's that's really interesting of you to say. Are you happy to dive a little bit deeper into the? Not not too deep, not too deep. I'm not a um, a psychologist over here, but into the mental health issues that you faced before and and the reasons why are you the reasons you felt why um, at St Mary's and moving over there. Like, what were the what what was the re- what was the reason for that? What what so were you getting at in the yeah, UK? That- no, you're right. I, I, like, I'm I'm not I'm not an immensely effective administrator. Yeah. So. I think I'm pretty good with people. I think I'm pretty good at influencing behavior, which is why I go towards teaching and coaching. Um, But yeah, I'm not a great administrator. And where I got myself at St. Mary's was having some fairly successful programs that recruited really well. That generates quite a lot of work and particularly administrative work and lots and lots of marking um, in a, in a university environment and lots of other administration and and I just, I just I couldn't cope in that environment so I ended up getting into quite a bad place eventually told people uh, at the point at the point you tell people like you know at the point my wife finds out I'm in to see the doctor and getting medicated so whether or not you think that you know, that's a good thing or a bad thing. I don't, I don't know. But at the time being medicated really helped me, um, to be able to move forward and, and reduce, reduce some of the risks that were coming with the mental health issues I was having with the depression I was having. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just not, not being able to cope with work and not thinking I was good enough to manage what I was trying to manage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting because it's. I'm guessing that transition from being really good at your job, so you're a really good coach, like in any football club, rugby club, institute, whatever it may be, really good coach, really good with people, and then there's a spot on the level up, so you become management. Then you're, all of a sudden you do the less of what you're good at, the coaching, the people, and you become more of the administrator. Yeah. So I guess that's 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 often a, a conundrum for people. Like, do I stay put and do what I like or and what I'm good at, or do I make that step up and do less of what I like, but probably more money, probably more responsibility, but actually I'm moving away from the the core thing that I've always wanted to do and what makes me happy. Yeah. So so just just moving on to the Fulham um role that you've obviously got now, is that a bit of a mixture of the two? Is that still more of the kind of management leadership style role? Yeah, so, so Saudi and now Fulham have, have both enabled me to be, be working in an environment where I'm much happier and feel much safer in, from a health perspective in that, yeah, I'm, I've got, for me, a nice balance 
of sort of managing and leading people and being able to be creative in building things, building programs, building structures and moving things forward, which is what I enjoy doing. Um, and also being able to work day to day with athletes, which, which gives you a lot, a lot of your sort of warm and cozy feelings and a lot of your enjoyment and energy. Um, so yeah, so both those environments are really positive for me from that perspective. Mm-hmm. So how how long was your um, how long was your notice period in Saudi? And the only reason I ask that is I just want to transition into talking about the process that you went through, knowing yeah. that you were going to leave Saudi into the Fulham role, and what kind of thought yeah. process you were going through to actually plan for that transition, and then yeah. from, from the transition into actually day to day in the club, and what your plan and and progressions were going to be uh, it was long um so and it was one of the reasons why i didn't think fulham would offer me the role because the issue with contracts in saudi um I, like people kind of own you once they have your have, a, have you under contract to, to some extent so they're like the implications of breaking contract and jumping out early would be quite extensive. Um, so when I when I first spoke to Fulham, it was I think more, at least six months, more than six months out from the end of my contract. And the discussion I'd had with them was like, the likelihood is I'm going to be staying to the end of my contract. So if you're considering giving me the role, it means it means waiting. Um, but it was like it was a fantastic outcome for me. They were willing, they were willing to do that, and it's a really nice feeling to be valued to that extent as well. That they would yeah, be willing, uh, willing to wait. Um, having got the job, I do what I normally do, which is get into this really excited phase of thinking about it. Um, so normally, the first thing I do is buy a notebook because I'm a frantic note maker and I have to keep a notebook on my bed because similar, I think to lots of people, lots of my thinking is done when I'm nearly asleep. So I'm like rolling over in bed and making loads of notes about things I want to do and planning. So I filled a notebook, you know, for the first month, um, that process ran out of steam as I calmed down a little bit. And then it was starting thinking about what I would do in the early months when I was there. And it, and it's, it was very different actually to Saudi. So sort of my, my decision to go to Saudi and getting out there all happened quite fast. And I basically just landed in Saudi and was straight into doing because there was nothing there. So there was, there was a bit of ongoing analysis of the system, which, which continued for the entire three years I was there actually trying to read what the problems are in the system but there was actually stuff to do immediately that was u- like using my expertise, not just wandering around watching. Whereas in Fulham, walking into an environment where there's a lot of embedded processes and people who are working, who have patterns of work, who have processes, um, there's meetings that I think should happen. And you're gradually getting awareness of all well, these ones are happening and these ones aren't happening. And 
those ones are happening over there. I didn't know about them, but actually probably I should be in them. So what the early months of being in, in Fulham have been, I've been really just, what well, the early first month has really been spending the majority of my time thinking about all the stuff that was in my notebook that I wrote when I got excited and trying to contrast that with all the things I'm able to find out about people's operating procedures and the processes that are happening with athletes in the club now. So that's, that's essentially lots and lots of watching and listening is what my first month has been. And, and it's been a little bit uncomfortable because I'm, I have a tendency to want to be acting. Um, and I've kind of pushed myself to wait so that I'm not taking actions unnecessarily, changing things for the sake of changing things or doing things for the sake of doing things um, until I really know what, what's, what can meaningfully be done to make a difference. Uh, and, and that's, I'm, I'm a chunk of the way there to having worked that out now. So I'm at the point where um, sort of starting to work with individuals in the group to either help them understand and improve their individual practice, understand where they want to go as professionals in terms of developing, understanding how I can shape or contribute to the programs they're delivering to athletes, um, understand how our wider system can get pulled together in a slightly more coherent, integrated way and improve sort of communications and those sorts of things. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's taken a month, which surprised me how long I was, I was willing to sort of watch and listen. But I think it's left me in quite a good place to understand what, what things we're going to be doing. One thing we spoke about beforehand was a little bit around the integration of different departments. And it's something that gets spoken about a lot, people working in silos. And and, and for me, it seems this quite fluffy concept. And it's quite, it's to me, from my experience, it, it's quite hard for people to put a, a real um, kind of coherent argument together of how that how people are going to actually go about doing that and give some practical recommendations of this is actually what we do and this is the result we've had from it. So how, just talking about that integration of the departments, how are you going to go about doing that and trying to improve that at Fulham? Yeah. Well, what I, I think one of, the, one, one of the directions we're already potentially, potentially heading in is shifting people around a little bit. So creating environments where the right people who you want to have discussions are sitting in the same room on a regular basis. So um, bringing, bringing coaches, analysts, whatever else, nutrition, psychology, sports science, strength conditioning elements, wherever we think those people need to be having discussions, facilitating facilitating environments where they're together more and that become that makes that easier to happen at the moment at Fulham that happens actually really nicely in terms of between sort of sports science S&C and medical so in terms of management of players with injuries 
there's lots of very natural flow of information that's happening on a day-to-day basis um, that's really effective. But we don't have that, I don't think, so effectively in other areas. Um, so I think some of, some of that can improve in, t- in terms of people crossing paths regularly. And the other one is have, having a structured framework for formalizing those discussions. So what I, what I think tends to happen, and I think a little bit what I've seen potentially at Fulham, is you go through ebbs and flows, depending on the people who are there, what their role is or how their role is changing over time, you can go through, if people are in the same environment together, you can go through some nice um, naturally forming communication channels that can become really effective and really productive. The problem is if people shift roles or staff change, that disintegrates very, very quickly if you don't have a framework in which those discussions sit. So I think the framework becomes really important to have continuity over time. And like it, it, it's one of the things that I keep coming back to from Dan Clether's book um, is his, his cardinal rule of consistency. And it doesn't just apply to me in terms of consistency or training for athletes. It, it applies in all the areas of the work we're doing across, across that sports sector. And the, the framework that enables you to have consistency in your communication regardless of changes in staff or changes in role or changes in the time that we have available facilitating that consistency is what what becomes really important in moving a program forward progressively over time so how how would you go about formalizing them conversations actually like day to day like i have a com- i have a conversation with you you've put me in the right place in terms of having a discussion with the right people how does that then yeah. get become formal yeah. yeah so some of that's just as simple as having protected meetings like there like there are times that are set aside where people are going to sit down with some sort of frameworked agenda that we know we're always going to come back to talk about these things so it's not the f- the fact that we've got two really good communicators Working in an environment together and everything happens really seamlessly is lovely. But but what if someone comes into a role who isn't a natural communicator or doesn't want to broach discussions with someone else? Like you, you need to have a, a protected time where those discussions can be had and where it isn't about thinking about the things you're comfortable saying or comfortable raising it's that there's an expectation that these things need to be discussed and we are going to raise all these issues in a systematic way rather than relying on people's personalities to let those things happen naturally um and there's a risk in that isn't there that you that there's a little bit of potential quashing of some of those more natural interactions that happen but i think the net gain the net gain is worthwhile in terms of putting that in a structured framework of of knowing times and topics that you're definitely going to be talking about things. Mm-hmm. Just you mentioned a couple of times about different personalities. Is there any structure you go through, again, trying to delve a bit into the, the formalisation of all this kind of stuff, actually formalising what kind of personalities we have in the team rather than just knowing 
He doesn't, you know, he's not a natural communicator. He's X, she's Y. Actually formalizing that into some sort of document or, you know, framework of, of what we've actually got in the team in terms of, in terms of personalities. Uh, I don't, and I think I'd feel a little bit nervous about that. Okay. Um, partly because some of those things are quite personal to people and partly because I don't necessarily want to pigeonhole people. Like I, There are people I've worked with in all, in all the places I've worked, including at Fulham, where you get a feel for someone's natural tendency, and I put that in air quotes, um, because, because it's context-driven, isn't it? And if I can change the context and if I can modify the relationships, if I can modify the dynamics of the relationships between people, I can shape that context to draw out different behaviours for people. So I don't, I don't want to box somebody up as being like this when actually the onus is on me to say, well, whatever what, whatever they are like, I want to drive or encourage a bit more of this behaviour or a bit more of that interaction. How am I going to modify? How am I going to modify the environment or the balance of the relationships or their role or whatever else it is to enable those behaviours to come out? So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with John. Hope you are enjoying part. Hope you enjoyed part one. So part one obviously focused on his background and his time in Saudi Arabia, but part two is where the training chat really gets going. So we chat speed, we chat change direction, we chat coaching that both them qualities in um, youth soccer athletes, youth football athletes. So you will absolutely love part two. So stick with it. So just want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're going to undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device. But not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So also sponsoring today's podcast is St. Mary's University. So St. Mary's is internationally renowned as a leader in strength and conditioning education, and it was the first UK institution to offer an undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning. And its master's program, which I have been through personally and would highly recommend, was the first part-time distance learning strength and conditioning course in the UK. 
And it's the emphasis on the development of coaching skills and relevance of theory to practice which makes St Mary's stand out from the other courses that are out there. So both uh, undergraduate and postgraduate courses are delivered in the purpose-built state-of-the-art performance education centre and anyone that's been to St Mary's will know what a fantastic uh, facility that is and is taught by staff that are highly experienced coaches and expert sports scientists. And one thing that students are really on the lookout for now is universities links with uh, professional sport and that's definitely something that St Mary's has with their links with multiple football clubs across London in Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Fulham, but also uh, London Irish in rugby and Sutton Tennis Academy. They also embed students within the Royal Ballet Company and Royal Ballet School in London. And this obviously helps students to obtain uh, necessary coaching experience to maximise their chances of gaining employment post-graduation. So in addition to the strength and conditioning courses, they offer both undergraduate and postgraduate programmes in physiology and sports rehab. But if you're interested in getting to know more about the course at St Mary's, make sure you visit their website, uh, which is stmarys.ac.uk forward slash courses. Um, one thing that I wanted to, to tap into is obviously the, the, the coaching of coaches throughout your time at St Mary's to obviously to Saudi and I'm now at Fulham. And the some of the common themes that you see in terms of the misunderstandings of something, um, you know, the, the, the coaching, coaching practice misunderstandings that, that drive um, coaches to do certain things where they could be spending time elsewhere or drive poor practice in specifically in your area of speed and change in coaching speed and change direction is there yeah. anything that stands out that is that keeps coming up every single time you move jobs or get into the cohort of coaches or whatever that may be that yeah. that really pings in your brain of we're going through this again um with developing coaches Yes, and, and I, I guess a little bit with coaches who are already fairly far on their journey, but certainly with earlier stage developing coaches. And I don't know if it's driven by, particularly in the UK, people's expectations of what the UKSCA ask of people. And I say expectations because it's not, I, I think it's an incorrect interpretation of what the UKSCA are asking of people, but I understand why people end up this way but but coaches who are who over regress and over coach or over cue um like in, in a general sense that's the, the biggest problem i see so people who want to take athletes strip athletes movement back too far and you end up with drills that are so regressed they're just not challenging the athlete anymore. The athlete's just going through rope movement practice in a way that isn't really challenging them to develop. And then when Could that... Give you, some, give you some examples there, John, if possible. Um, so if you take something as simple as a, like a ready position in agility, um, Bringing athletes back to a stage where they're doing movements in ready positions that are so detached, so lacking in dynamicism, dynamism, dynamicism, I don't know which one, um, 
so devoid of any sort of problem the athlete's having to solve. You're just asking them to find shapes and positions that are fairly basic when it might not even be necessary at the moment for them. And then, and then over-queuing those things. So basically, athletes aren't just doing something which is too regressed. They're doing something which is too regressed and learning how to move like a robot because you know, they're being cued on their posture and they're being cued on their foot position. They're being cued on their knee alignment. And they're being cued on where their hands are. And they're totally losing sight of what the purpose of this is, which is to learn to be more athletic. Um, so... And I think, and that's why I said that comes, it's not what the UKSA ask for, but it's what people perceive the UKSA to ask for accreditation because they get told they need to coach an agility drill. And the only thing that they're really aware of in coaching is that, well, if they can't do this one, they need to take it back to a more simple one, which is a reasonable, that statement on its own is reasonable. And I need to help athletes discover how to find good shapes and telling them what that good shape is seems like a intuitive solution for a coach and is really historically the norm. So I understand why people end up doing that. Um, but for me, what we should, what we should be training athletes to do in terms of agility is learn how to solve problems effectively. So, if I'm not giving the athlete a problem to solve, all I'm doing is telling them how to move. They're not learning how to become good problem solvers. So, and that's, I think really, I think really common. Um, and I, I guess if, if you had asked me 10 years ago, I, re I reckon 2000 and six, seven, eight. If you had asked me how I coach agility, uh, it wouldn't have been as far as the problems I've just described, but it would have been a bit like that in terms of, it's a bit like what I characterize as an exos, an exos model of agility, which is you've got this toolbox of fundamental agility movements, and you're going to teach athletes how to move with precision and accuracy and some fluency in that prescribed toolbox of agility movements. And my, my, it's just my, my read. I think, I think that's a bit like the way exos are. So we have a cross step and a ready position and a drop step or whatever else, however you want to characterize your movements, you have your set of movements. And that would have been how I coached agility 10 years ago. Um, but definitely where I've, shifted is towards a model where I, like I say I want I want the athletes solving more problems and I end up somewhere in the middle of what I see as a bit of a polarized debate at the moment so we've we've got people that really want to drive towards the role of of context being really important to teaching agility or teaching movement or teaching sport and context being everything versus at the other end of the spectrum, people who have historically been movement quality is everything. 
and I'm kind of hovering in the middle of those two. And I shift more towards one end of that spectrum or the other, depending now on what I see as the needs of the athlete. So if I have an athlete who's a really appears to be a really gifted mover and finds really good shapes, then we'll spend much more of our time focused on solving more contextually relevant problems. And if I have an athlete who I think is struggling from a movement perspective, then we'll regress back towards those those simpler movements, the more more decontextualized practiced, which is effectively becoming more closed in terms of a rehearsal of movement. Um, but always with a view that I'm trying to give the athlete opportunity to solve problems. But for the athlete who isn't a good mover, solving a problem that requires speed, fluency, management of their body weight and mass distribution with gravity, the physics of that creates enough problems for them to have challenges. And that's the level of regression I'm willing to go to. And kind of that's why I talk about coaching ugly. So I always want to be making sure, even when I've regressed to a more closed environment to practice movement, I still want to be making sure my challenges are sufficient that what I don't have is a nice YouTube video of an athlete executing perfect agility movements and running routes. I don't, I don't really want to spend time doing that. I want to spend time with a drill that's regressed or progressed just enough that things are constantly in and out of being a little bit ugly. Like they're not able to solve the problem quite properly yet. And then we can hover around the way in which I'm challenging that movement problem, tweaking it, whether it's the speed, whether it's the eccentric load, whether it's the level of banking I'm asking for from their body position, whether it's that we're going to accelerate out straight or accelerate out with a turn, whether it's that I'm going to give them a shove and destabilize them halfway through their cut or halfway through their cross step. Like whatever it is, I want to find ways that they're always solving problems with that movement, constantly being challenged to find an effective way to, to use their body. Uh, and the same thing goes for, for, for queuing. Like, I saw people over queuing. The problem is what I see with some people who are driving towards sort of ecological psychology is that people perceive that. It's not necessarily sold that way, but so, I see people perceiving that to mean that queuing is necessarily a bad thing. But queuing isn't a bad verbal feedback from a coach. I don't see as a bad thing if you understand what it's doing and that I don't need to be necessarily telling an athlete how to move, although in some situations I might, but I don't need to be doing that. What I need to recognize is that my verbal cues are directing an athlete's attention. So what they're paying attention to as they go through the movement or it's affecting their intention. So what is it they're trying to achieve through this movement? And if I can if I can recognize the way that my verbal feedback modifies those things, it's nudging and tweaking the way the athlete is then is then solving a problem. Um, 
And really, I think all coaches are effectively already, they're already, all coaches are constraints driven. Like almost the term constraints driven coaching is a little bit redundant because all coaching is constraints driven because every movement an athlete does, if you're of the ecological psychology sort of bent, if that's where you sit, um, everything the athlete does in all of their training is a combination. Their outcomes are a combination of sort of them, their environment and the task. Uh, and it doesn't matter what style of coaching or the way I'm delivering cues or the way the drill is set up, their outcome is still derived from their abilities and perceptions, the task and the environment around them. That doesn't change. So the constraints on the athlete are always an influencing factor on their movement outcome. What I, what I need to spend a bit of time paying attention to is the way in which my constraints modify modify that outcome and the extent to which I'm leaving an athlete freedom to try and find solutions to problems. Um, and as much as anything, this is where people on the, on the constraints-driven side tend to do a lot. As much as anything, that's about trying to facilitate the athlete uh, getting their feedback. So if we're, if we're trying to learn stuff, getting their feedback from the environment and their task outcome and how things feel and what outcomes they're able to produce, getting their feedback from there rather than necessarily getting their feedback from the, from the coach. Um, I'm just wary. I feel like people are sometimes drifting too much that way that they forget that input from the coach can be a really effective way to direct an athlete's attention or intention to enable to, to nudge their problem solving in a direction that we think is productive. So you're not you're not determining how they make decisions and solve problems, but you're nudging it in a way that you think is helpful for them. And I think that's an important part of your job that people shouldn't lose sight of. Mm -hmm. I've really meandered around there for a while. <laughs> no, 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 that, that, that's absolutely fantastic. So in terms of the kind of context versus movement quality, initial assessment, whether it is an official assessment or just watching and, and, and looking, what what do you what's that process look like for you? So you get a new athlete and you're determining which kind of way to, to hover. How, what's what's that look like for you? I'm I'm generally of a bent that I just I don't like testing. Yep. So I don't I don't like taking time where we sort of package up, box up, and deliver assessments. Everything comes everything comes from training for me. So providing I can be safe, so providing I understand enough about the athlete that whatever we do when they come to me is safe, then we just start training. So 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 we do before we assess and then my assessment comes out of the doing so um if i in the end what's important is what the athlete's able to produce safely in terms of their movement and the quickest way for me to understand 
how they're limited in a meaningful way is to watch them try to produce those outcomes, to produce those movements. Um, so normally, whether it's movement in a speed and agility setting, whether it's what they're doing in the gym, like we'll, we'll start with training. And then once we're underway with training, once we're moving in a forward direction, I can start to see and evaluate the places where I think we're limited. Um, like, like an example from, from football that I'm seeing at the moment is you, you have this very large bias in football training towards small-sided games. And those small-sided games are really valuable to football development. They potentially can deliver things to you in terms of physiological load, but also mechanical load, agility, um, as well as the sort of tight technical skills that probably the football coaches are looking for in terms of players managing themselves and their space and the ball under pressure receiving and giving, moving effectively in, in tight spaces. Like all those things are really valuable and I understand why those small-sided games are so important. But that small-sided game environment is really, really unnatural. It's not a normal human movement environment. Whereas a full game field of football is a bit more of a normal human movement environment there's opportunities to do some of that tight movement stuff but there's also opportunities for sort of jogging around running and sprinting over more open distances so the game is to some extent i would characterize as requiring a bit more of a fundamental set of normal human skills but small-sided games do not develop a full set of normal human skills. They deliver short, stabby stepping movements. They deliver a lot of time on relatively fixed, stiff limb positions. They deliver lots of really, really short one-step, two-step accelerations. Uh, they deliver disassociation between the shoulders and the pelvis, where people are moving explosively in tight rotating patterns, then you separate the shoulders from the pelvis in an explosive way to generate rotation and control rotation in some of those small-sided game movements. The problem is, when you do that in large volumes, you're unteaching or you're, you're regressing athletes from a normal fundamental skill of running, which is one of my favorite skills. So running requires a rhythmic association with some tension between the shoulders and the pelvis, not an explosive separation. And running requires you to be able to rhythmically fold your limbs. But small-sided games don't let you ever fold your limbs like bring your heel to your butt to be able to step over the opposite knee in a, in a, like a sprint pattern. So that, that outcome between what the shoulders and arms do compared to the pelvis and that outcome of what you're able to do in terms of folding the limb breeds a pattern of movement, trains a pattern of movement, which transfers over into athletes' open field running. And what you end up with in football are lots and lots of kids who run quite nicely when they're 12, 
run horribly when they're 17 because they come through football systems playing lots of small-sided games for a long time. They move really badly. So I've taken a long time to get around to my point that when I come in and watch, <laughs> I come in and watch some guys doing some sprints and they move horribly, I then have to go through a process of understanding why they're moving horribly. So for me, that's it's it's been trained into them from the volume of small-sided game practice movement they do. And I need now need a strategy to tackle that. So I don't think they're moving badly because they're weak through their trunk and they can't control their shoulders and pelvis connection. I don't think they're lacking some of the strength qualities to be able to run effectively, although I might want them stronger over time. I don't think it's limiting them from being able to run properly now. So my solutions to that movement problem are not probably in the gym. But what we do need to do for those athletes who are through that pathway is now find opportunities where I can balance that volume of small-sided game movement with opportunities to practice more open, rhythmic, technically more effective and more efficient and probably safer running mechanics. Um, and I'm going to need to do that in a relatively regressed, isolated way. I'm going to need to do that out of game context because if I put sprinting into football practices, they just sprint badly and they'd sprint badly in large volumes or higher volumes because we give them more opportunities to run in the, in the football practices. So looking to tweak the football practices to introduce more open field sprinting won't solve the problem. That's an example of where I need to regress to a more closed environment to develop some of those skills. That's contrary to what I might see in my 13-year-old boys who still know how to move effectively because it's, it's a natural movement to be able to run re technically reasonably well. Those 13-year-old boys move quite well. All I need for those boys is to work with coaches to find a balance of opportunities so we've got more opportunities for them to open out into normal running on a more regular basis so that the balance of movement stimulus between small-sided tight movement and wider open running is, is retained, a bit more of an even balance is retained so that we don't, in the process of doing lots of football practice, lose our skill to run effectively over time. So then for those 13-year-olds, I don't need to do as much regressed running specific out of football practice. Um, so, so all my all my decisions on how I'm gonna how I'm reading the problems of an athlete is based on watching them move and seeing how they're coping now. Trying to work back through the system to understand why they're coping in that way, and then using that analysis to try and make to try and have a best guess at where my solutions are going to come. And then it just becomes an iterative process because then I'm, I've seen a problem, worked through the program to try and understand where the roots of that problem came, put in an intervention to try and re tackle, resolve that, and now I just track the results of that intervention over time. And we can start to go through iterative cycles of saying, okay, this was my objective, this is how I'm evaluating it. 
It could be their speed. It could be qualitative analysis of them technically in their running. I'm monitoring that through our training process and seeing how it's evolving. If it isn't evolving, then I need to change something else about the process. Either I'm not doing enough of the fix or my choice of fix was the wrong choice of fix. And that's that's where I'm headed with my iterative cycles of watching the progress to my intervention and trying to then through 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 cycles that come after make new or hopefully better decisions about what's going to keep nudging the change in the direction I want it to go. So, so for them under 17, under 18 athletes who have come through that system, what and you've identified this as I've just discussed, what would be your, I mean, we're going to horrendous amounts of detail here, but keep it reasonably, reasonably um, short, but what would be the first part of call for them guys for, for you to... Um, for you to hit in them first session, two sessions, three sessions, first short cycle, what would that training look like? Um, like track and field. Okay. To have a really short answer. So, so for me, they've had they, they they will have had such a long time of being drilled and drilled and drilled into this really deeply ingrained, robust movement pattern that relates to tight and technical movements, tight and technical play, um, that I need to be fairly quite far removed from that to be able to drift, drift back in or reintroduce a set of skills that they've forgotten. Um, so for, for in some of those athletes there'll be a regression right back to like track and field style. We're going to do some A's. We're going to do some sprints. We're going to do some light resisted sprints that give us a bit less speed and a bit more opportunity to focus on our, on our patterning. So I'm almost I'm almost regressed beyond my beyond my problem-solving desire. Back to the point that I just need you to rediscover a really what should be a really fundamental movement for you that you've lost. Um, yeah, so it would it would it would feel like track and field, um, which is which is uncomfortable to some people because it, it, track and field isn't where I want them in the end. Uh, like our, our running, even our open running on the field, you know, grass running and running where I'm potentially going to have to do agility at some point through a run does have longer contact times, doesn't raise the center of mass as high. But it definitely should be able to fold a limb effectively. And I definitely should be able to move from a disassociated shoulder pelvis to an associated and rhythmically connected shoulder and pelvis. At the opportunity I have, a, you know, when a football player has the opportunity to go 15 metres, they should be able to move very quickly into that pattern. So it's not that I'm going to turn them into a track and field athlete, but I definitely want them to regain some of those skills that they've potentially lost that they can call on when it's required. And I don't – the problem solving is going to come with, okay, let's say I give them those skills – and then I watch them on the field, and when they get the opportunity to sprint on the field, they still sprint like they used to. So when I'm 
doing sprint session, they can sprint one way. But when they get into a field environment and they go 20 meters, they're back to their old model. And then in a situation where, okay, I've, I've delivered you I've delivered you a movement tool. I've supported you rediscovering that movement capability. But what I haven't given you yet is the capacity to recognize that that skill, there's an affordance for that skill being delivered in this sport environment that's available to you. And it's probably the best option to choose at this point in time in the game. And and then we'd be in a different situation where I now need to find ways to provide challenges and feedback from more football contextually looking practices where if they adopt their old pattern it's going to give them some failure feedback and if they if they recognize the new pattern that's available as useful it's going to improve improve their odds because they're going to start winning races to balls and those sorts of things um and, and then you're marrying up the that balance between using progressively decontextualized drills to deliver potentially a simple movement skill, potentially specific strength qualities that relate to that specific movement skill. And to do that, you need volume of practice. And that's why contextualized practice all the time, you know, it can't deliver all our outcomes because often when I contextualize a practice into a game scenario, I, I create less volume. Like there's less opportunity for me to be doing the movement. And if the movement is the thing that's important to me to try and develop or the strength qualities that relate to it or the tissue and tendon qualities that relate to it, if any of those things are what I'm after, then volume becomes a really important driver for me getting the adaptive change that I want. So if I need an environment where I can create more volume, that often means taking out context. But through the process of progressively taking out context, I gradually, I progressively reduce the likelihood of me facilitating transfer. So at some point, I'm going to have to bring it back and introduce introduce more context. And and flitting between those two, or decision making between those two, like what am I what am I taking away to enable me to deliver overload and volume or intensity or something else? What am I losing when I take away that context? And how am I going to facilitate any transfer back in by the reintroduction of that context at some point in time? Do we, and you mentioned at the start when you were kind of describing the what you were viewing from these guys that have gone through that, that cycle of, of years and years of small-sided games, do we, and then going back to the common misunderstandings and misconceptions of, of when you're coaching the coaches, do we... Or have we got a tendency to always, because of our because of our education or our, how comfortable we are, to think that it is always something that can be fixed in the gym over uh, what can be fixed outside? Well, maybe, and and lots of the time it's that's right. <laughs> and yeah. lots, of the, lots of the time, the gym's a really effective place to. To fix problems because it's like you know what what are the range of reasons an athlete can't execute a task it could be because they've 
just never thought of doing a skill that way. It's just never occurred to them. So the affordance might be there, but they just don't, they haven't recognized that it's there. Um, so that's kind of a perception issue for the athlete. It could be that they kind of recognize it's there, but they don't really know how to do it. So in a contextualized environment, you might get some athletes that recognize it's there, don't know how to do it, but have a go, fail, learn something, have another go, fail, learn something and work it out. But you'll also have athletes who will just stay away from it because they don't know how to do it. And those are some of the ones where more decontextualized movement practice can help. And then you've got another whole set of reasons that relate to the fact that like, they literally physically can't do it. Um, like it's a like it's a classic error um, in sprint coaching, acceleration coaching, that everyone, athletes and coaches alike, perceive that acceleration is all about being inclined forward, and you know, and sort of JB Morin's work highlights some of that nicely. That it's a really important skill to be able to orient your force vector forwards. But the problem is when you're 11 or when you're going through growth phases and you haven't really worked out how to express force effectively through a limb, trying to bank your body forwards is not possible because the degree of forward inclination you can have with your body when you're accelerating is a direct product of how much leg extension force you can produce. So people who can't produce as much leg extension force should not be banked forward. People that are really, really capable of producing lots of extension force through one leg can lean forward further because they can manage the demands for sort of vertical force and rotational control of the system. They can do it all because they've got enough force to put lots and lots horizontally and still have enough going vertically to manage everything. But if you're not very strong, most of your force gets used up staying balanced and being able to overcome gravity. You haven't got a lot left over, so you can't tip the system forward because you'll just fall. But when we coach athletes to be down, forward, we're looking for a technical solution in the field that should be solved in the gym. Like that athlete is not going to be able to lean forward more until they're able to express more force. So whether that's plyometrics, whether that's resistance, strength training, whatever it is, there's something away from sprinting which is going to facilitate them being able to express the leg extension force, being able to overload that capacity and cause some adaptation, which technically cueing them or finding problem-solving tasks or doing drills where they get feedback from the environment, none of those things are going to get a weak athlete leaning further forward because they can't lean further forward. Um, and if you, if you try and hammer a change on the field, which should be fixed somewhere else, the athlete will cope. Like they will do something to try and give you the outcome that they think you're asking for or to deliver the outcome that they think they're supposed to do. And typically what you see in acceleration is athletes who are piked. Like they just fold at the hip because perceptually they can get a sense that they're leaning forward further, that they're closer to the ground, that they've got inclination in the system. 
if they're bent over at the hips and their head feels closer to the floor, it gives them that that impression. So what we end up is not being willing to go to another environment potentially drives technical problems in athletes. Um, but at the same time, I understand I understand the point you're making that the, like for most SNCs, the gym is their go-to environment, and you know it's it's the cliched if you've got only got a hammer, um, yeah, everything's a nail, isn't it? So yeah, cool. Well, I promised to keep you till eleven o'clock, and it's nearly twenty past. So. I'm going to do a. I'm going to firstly thank you for giving up your Saturday morning to have a chat. And anyone that has any questions for you, or roles in you know previous roles, or role at Fulham, or what you're doing down there, is there any? What's the best place for them to get in touch with you, John? Um, Twitter's probably the easiest. Yeah, Johnny Mechanic. Excellent. Johnny Mechanic. Yeah, that's I E Johnny, isn't it? Not Y. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, yeah, really appreciate your time. Um, absolutely superb. I'm, I've just written down there, part two, question mark. So there's so much more to chat about. There's so many more questions have sure. come out from, from me to uh, what you've been chatting about. So we'll have to line up that sometime in the near future. Happy to, but, yeah. That'd be superb. So, But really appreciate your time and uh, have a great weekend. Thank you, and you. Thanks, John. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with John. So massive thanks to John for giving up his time. Three weeks into a new job, it was obviously lots going on, so really appreciate him jumping on a Saturday morning to speak to me for this episode. So big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to I Measure You, Fatigue Science, and of course, St. Mary's University for sponsoring this episode today. So really appreciate your support. Please keep pressing subscribe on your chosen podcast player so every Thursday morning UK time the podcast will drop straight onto your phone um, so you can get involved straight away. So really appreciate your support and I will chat to you next week.